The information on this show is not intended to be the primary basis for investment decisions and should not be used to provide financial advice. Please obtain the guidance of a financial professional regarding your particular financial concerns. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. This program reflects the views of Arif Halabi, California Insurance License 0B93792 of TFS Financial Insurance Services. TFS Financial Insurance Services, California Insurance License Number 0F22477, provides retirement income strategies using insurance and annuity products, which are guaranteed by the claims-paying ability of the issuing company. Financial security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Now higher income strategy. Learn from Arab Halaby. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with me. I'm Arab Halaby. Let's give you the number here, triple eight ninety nine retire. That's eight eight eight. Nine nine seven three eight four seven triple eight ninety nine retired <laughs> retire oh my gosh uh, listen the White House is doing everything it can to tell you uh, pay no attention to the man behind the screen it's called inflation it's not affecting you come on now you know listen I understand you went to the store but why didn't you just throw on an extra coat. or what is it uh, take the thermostat and increase it a little bit or walk to work. Spend one day riding your bike or walk, right? I mean, do you understand? That's their level. Does it not sound like Jimmy Carter? I mean, honest to goodness, it sounds literally like Jimmy Carter's playbook, right? We're in this big despair. There's nobody. And and all of a sudden, uh, out of the blue, and listen, I was a, a kid in college when Ronald Reagan came out. And initially, we were not, remember, college. Did I say that already? Yeah. We were not in favor of a Republican. We were... Uh, you know, the Democrat, the story. And let me tell you, probably like many of you, I was, uh, was it 19? Uh, yeah, listen, I was a kid in high school. All of a sudden, the hostages are freed from Iran. Surprise! I become an enormous Ronald Reagan fan immediately because I understood how, how often my parents talked about being part of an America, uh, uh, of America and being an American and what that means. And it was just such a patriotic thing. I don't know. I'm sure it's written somewhere. I haven't spent the time to look about what really happened behind the scenes and why when he was giving his uh, inauguration speech, I believe, suddenly the hostages are in the air over international airspace. I don't know if it was time just right. I'm not sure of the story. But I can tell you this, you know, who, who lost everything, kind of like the the, the the sore loser kid that you just feel sorry for at the end of the story was Jimmy Carter. Great man. Teaches Bible study, I, I think, up until just a couple of years ago. Wonderful guy, I understand. A good husband, father, the wonder, lousy president. Now, I, I don't know if you can say that about Joe Biden. No, not the lousy president part. Silly, the good man, the good husband part. The good father. Because I don't know anything about him. I, I do know that he's encouraged his son to be, uh, oh gosh, just a, a pariah of society. Somebody who would be given nothing. Had he were, uh, had he were some celebrity in, in Hollywood, some music moguls kid, right? They'll protect him just so long, and then he does time and sing sing, or camp, or uh, as they say, uh, oh gosh, wayside on a ranch. If you're from LA County, I mean, you get the idea, right? He, he needs to go to to jail, probably federal prison. It's just me guessing based on my cursory understanding of the law and going through the police academy and I'm guessing just maybe one or two violations. And these are the people that are in charge. So that's the good news. So how do we manage 
our retirement accounts or life when even the, the people, at least publicly, are not even coming out and trying to admit that there's some sort of strategy to attack inflation, to bring down the price of oil, to allow everything, goods, services to flow. How do you do that? Well, look, a lot of you have asked me, Eric, are you going to be moving? Are you going to be moving? Because you talk about, you know, Californians and people are leaving and it's a mess. Look, uh, I tend to believe that they're not going to fix the state of California. I, I, it's what I believe. I just think you don't have left and right coming to conclusions, solving problems anymore. You have left and far left. And so when you have any extreme during any time period, right, specifically as we speak, the, this time period where the left has created this issue, the problem, certainly some of the right has been involved. You can expect that. You can say that, legitimately speaking. But when you get to the place where there isn't really an adult in the room to deal with the issue, I think it has to collapse. I think the lack of awareness of the real problem. Now, I don't know what that means, collapse, exactly. Like, how does it play out? Does it mean all government pensions and contracts throughout the state are going to uh, dissolve and have to be renegotiated? Maybe. Does it mean sky-high car registration, gasoline tax, maybe, right, to fix roads and bridges? Does it mean a seizure of certain school assets? Right, you understand the state budget requires 40%. It's a law. 40%, 4-0 of the state budget has to be spent on education. Now, when I say the word education, you just put in your mind, oh, the teachers are paid more. The schools must have air conditioning and running water and no lead in the paint. That's what you think when I said education. But that's not what it means. It could mean administrative salaries. It could mean this boondoggle of contractors supported by other superintendents and supervisors and city councilmen and and people uh, taking money from the school system through no-bid contracts, through forcing uh, only union wages. That means employers will charge more money for the contracts for the city, state, county schools. They're not even allowed to do it for less money. So that's a transfer of wealth, isn't it? So I, I think the state of California is going to, to go through some challenge. So what do I think is going to happen? Number one, I want you to get out of debt. Dave Ramsey, many of us have, have talked about this for years, years and years. When I say debt, I mean bad debt, not good debt. I love it when uh, you know people will criticize it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no such thing as good debt. Well, I'll tell you what. I, I own this building, let's say, for $10 million. My payment is 100000 a month, and all of the tenants pay me 120000 a month. I win $20,000. Yes, I have debt on it. Right? If that were the case, you might say, well, that's a good debt. I want two of those to go, please. Now, the numbers might be slightly different. Right? I, I want you to have... The understanding when money is free, you want a lot of it. When money isn't free, you want less of it, right? I want you to be a giver, which means a saver. When money, when they're going to pay you a lot of interest for it. I want you to be a borrower when you're going to pay very little interest for it. Okay, so do you see the, do you see the concept? You're going to switch. You're going to flow with the economy, right? When stocks, bonds, mutual funds, when everything is very, very inexpensive. I don't mean now. I don't know when. Maybe not for two years or five years. 
A lot of people will ask me, Arif, when is it going to change? When do you think it's going to turn around? <laughs> I had a, a client who was not happy. He said, Arif, what, what, do you, what do you predict for next year? I said, your guess is as good as mine. Oh, my gosh. You're the financial professional, Arif. I go, right, but I'm not a, a what do they call it? A, one of those guru people, right? A mind reader. I'm not the, the amazing Randy. That's not my job. My job is to keep some or part of your money protected away from market risk, number one. Number two is over time to get reasonable rates of return. That's what we do. Our job is to make sure you have reliable, reasonable, reliable retirement income. Right? That what happens with the market when it's going up or down, well, that's, it'd be nice to earn high rates of return. Of course, wouldn't it be? But when it comes to, oh, I don't know, making sure your money is not going backwards, I think that's a pretty smart thing to do. I think that's a pretty neat expertise to have. That's what we do. There are some accounts we have that actually pay a bonus. They add money to your account for certain things. You want to take it and walk away with it in five or eight or nine or 10 years. Some companies might pay a bonus for that. That means an additional add. Remember when you worked or if you still work and you put in money and the company you work with does a match, right? You put in 3%, they put in three, you put in five, they put in three, whatever it might be. Well, there are companies that will do something similar. It's an inducement. It's the idea of putting money in. They're going to encourage you to do that. You're going to give up something. There's always a catch. Is the catch okay with you? If it is, great. If it isn't, then don't do it. Because I think the recession is here and the cash that's king, as they say, right? You always hear that story, cash is king. I think what you're going to hear instead, income is king. Cash flow is king. Understanding regular streams of income is king. And that could be things like 401k uh, withdrawals that have been formed or pushed into an annuity. IRAs that are no longer in the market, annuity payments. It might be social security income. It might be pension income. Now, listen, I don't know if they're going to have the amount of money in Social Security that's going to be able to afford to pay it out forever the same amount. Maybe. But I will tell you this, that no matter what, even if they don't have it, let's discount it. Let's let's say your Social Security checks $2,000. If we can make sure you have a financial plan or, or income stream or income plan or, or you sit down and you start building your, your portfolio of income, and you're going to take the 2000 and discount it to, I don't know, 1400 right? 2000 times 70%, discount it to 1400 then I think that's a great idea. Can you live on that $1,400 a month? I mean, everybody wants more, but can you? Plus rental property, plus pension, plus retirement accounts. If when you add all that up, you can have a reasonable, comfortable food, shelter, clothing, then we're way ahead of the game then we're going to be able to sustain through this recession. We're going to be able to survive through this coming collapse of whatever that might look like, the city, county, state, financial systems, right? There's just not enough money in the end of the story. So you have to be prepared. Will it happen tomorrow? No, it won't. Next month? No. Probably not even next year, but it's going to happen sooner or later. So we just have to plan and prepare. What that means is something simple. It means that you should have 
food, shelter, clothing, you know, a little bit of, uh, what do they call it, emergency reserves. Well, you live in earthquake country, folks. You should have some cash savings at home, not just in $100 bills, but 10s and 20s and, and maybe 100s, right? You should have some emergency food and water, batteries and flashlights. You live in earthquake country. Remember 1994? It wasn't that long ago. January 17, I could tell you it was like yesterday. For most of us, all right, I worked as a policeman in Northridge at the time. Yeah, that's right. The Northridge earthquake, I worked in Northridge. That was great. I don't think we went home. Uh, what did we have? I think we had, it was, it was either three or four months, a 12-hour day, seven days a week. That means we never left. 12 hours, rather, right? Go home, sleep, turn around and come back. Never had a day off. So it's tough. Tough going. All right, that's what happens. Public service, that's what you do. A lot of people lost their life. It was tragic. So we have to prepare for those kinds of emergencies. Just like if you lived in the desert, you want to have water in your car when you drive across the desert. So the same thing with your retirement. Because retirement is going to last, God willing for most of us, a very long time. And if it does, you now have multiple sources of income. Because just like if you drive from your house to the grocery store and back, you may not have to have any bottles of water in the car. You may not ever have an earthquake happen in those two hours that you're gone. But you're not going to be retired for two hours, are you? So let's plan for that. So I want to give you some things. Grab your pen and paper. I'm going to give you some tips and tricks, things that I want you to know about when it comes to kind of planning and preparing and what do you do to make sure that you have the right things on track. So what is that, man? Well, number one, think of it like this. I want you to have money saved at home. I don't know how much. That's a personal thing. For some of you, $100 is not a lot of money. For some of you, $1,000 is is not a, is way too much, right? So, so something, have something somewhere. I'd like you to have 10s and 20s and 5s and 1s. I'd like you to have a few $100 bills. Great, maybe a lot. But the reason I want the smaller bills, simple. You go to the grocery store. There's an emergency. There's a crisis. What do you do? use a gold coin and say, I'd like a gallon of milk and the gold coin might cost $5,000 at the time. Guess what? Well, you now know the price of a gallon of milk. It's $5,000 or it's one gold coin, right? They don't make change there. They don't like, oh, here's little, here's little penny coins. It doesn't work that way. So the same thing will happen. You go just like they did in the earthquake, right? A lot of these liquor store, grocery store owners, uh, small liquor store owners, what did they do? Same thing in the riots. You went in and you said, I need some water or milk or bread. They go, oh, how much do you have? You have a $20 bill. Well, surprise, that's the price of a gallon of milk. So I want you to have smaller bills. Keeps you from being ripped off. Other parts that I want you to have is, is or other other things I want you to have are fresh batteries. And not just two or four or six, but maybe 10 of each. C batteries, uh, AAA, AA. The reason is simple, guys. If it's dark at night and you need a lantern or you have a flashlight, eh, why not have a plan B, right? And it runs all the way across the board from food and water, things that you guys would eat, not just, you know, MREs. <laughs> I remember in the earthquake, right, just like in the riots, both of them. Here we are and the, the military has their uh, deployments, right? They're all out and about. I was in West LA Division during the riots, and the poor guys, you know, kids from Fresno were sleeping on the ground and sleeping on in tents. 
And uh, we'd come up and talk to them. Hey, how's it going? Because it was quiet after, by the time they got there, it was already quieted down and uh, LAPD, LA sheriffs and the surrounding agencies took care of it. But they were there just in case. So that was helpful. We were appreciative. And these poor young men, some young women, here they are and, and they're eating meal ready to eat. And right across the street from them is a Domino's pizza. Well, they're not allowed to eat there. Pizza Hut, right down the corner. Papa John's, there it is. They can smell it. They couldn't see it. So here's what happens. We just went over and got them one, and they gave us some meal ready to eat, MREs. So we thought they were great. We took them home. We did an exchange, a couple large pizzas for, let's let's see what you guys are really eating. Open up that pouch. Oh, my word, was that not tasty. You thought to yourself, this is the best we have for the men and women that fight for us. So when you have your emergency food, please make sure you taste it ahead of time. This is not a punishment, right? This is not a prison or tough luck. This is your food. So make sure you have something you like. And then make sure you understand how to, how to have some sort of power, right? Whether it's batteries, backup for your uh, generator, for your car, your house, especially if you have an electric car. Right, the biggest push that I see the state of California doing, and listen, it's my contention with people, even like with Elon Musk, we're going to talk about him in the second hour. But uh, I, I like many things that he does and he says and, he, and, he, and who he is, but not everything. But one of the things that I really found interesting is he, he said, look, the United States is not ready. The power grid is not ready for a, uh, a fully solar uh, electric grid system. We're just not. The infrastructure isn't there. It's old. It's beat up. The transformers, the relay stations, and on and on. And here's somebody who's selling electric cars, who thrives on the electric grid. But what I found interesting was the concept that we as a, as a country would be pushing, and as a state, would be pushing electric car ownership. And yet we're not talking about the gas generating the instant gas. It's called Insta, Insta Start, I believe. Insta Power. The Department of Water and Power had three of them. And, and reports I'm getting is that they've dismantled all of them. And some of them are brand new. And you guys, the ratepayers, you paid for them. But because they worked off of natural gas, the cleanest burn, burning fuel, period. And the Department of Water and Power still uses coal, still uses oil. But it dismantles the instant start natural gas because, boys, heaven forbid, it actually would prevent brownouts this summer. Isn't that interesting? Why is the Department of Water and Power so woke? Just provide power. Just, just your job, keep lights on. Imagine that. Keep lights on. It's not that hard. I don't want to know your opinion on anything except electricity. But, as you'll hear, we're going to talk about ESG the second hour of the program. Sometimes I, I have guests on. This is a great guest uh, coming up. His name is Matt Rexroad. He's the president of Strategy Insights. Very important that you hear what he has to say. This guy's connected up in San, uh, Sacramento. We'll hear. We'll hear how necessary, well, some of the politicians might be. We'll see. But as we talk about this, right, when when the federal government really pushes, it's it's the old you can't fight City Hall. When they really push an idea, in this case, Solar energy, wind energy, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's hard to not get behind it. If you're a company, if you're a power supplier, if the federal government is giving you millions and millions of dollars to make sure that you continue to supply 
the area with power and electricity. Right? What, what do you do? I guess you just take the money, even though you have oil right below your feet. Right? We understand that nuclear energy is the, is the pathway to, quote, clean energy. But some environmentalists got something uh, in their mind, and that's it. Doesn't matter the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts. The amount of migratory birds, the amount of entire flocks of birds that are destroyed by windmills. Because by definition, a windmill is put in a particular air pattern, right? Where there's flow of air. Well, that's the same thing the birds use to fly south for the winter. It's not that confusing. They fly right down the same middle of path and and they can't see these wind turbines turning at at, uh, whatever speeds they're turning at. Right? You just can't see it. And these birds flew there yesterday or last month or last year. And they went around it. They were fine because they survived. Well, this year, well, maybe not. So I don't know the answer, except very simply. We have oil and gas, and we have nuclear. Let's keep our, com- uh, our country moving forward. Because you guys in retirement, guess who's going to pay for it? Do you think the kids are going to pay for it? They take Uber and Lyft. You think the kids are going to pay for it? They have those little electric scooters where they take their little phone and they go beep. And then the phone gives them the scooter and they go, what, a mile or two, three, five miles. I don't know how far they go on those things, but it's certainly far enough to where some of these kids don't even have a car or even a driver's license. How quickly did you and I want to drive at age 16 years old? I remember I was so upset because I didn't realize you had to make an appointment at the DMV. So I was 16 years old minus three days. I said, oh, on the 16th, I'm going down, you know, on the uh, on the, the day of my birthday, my 16th birthday, I'm going down, going to get my license. I call up on the three days prior and they say, oh, 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 you have to make an appointment. And I had to wait a week. So I had a permit, an ex- a permit for an extra week. Oh, I was shattered. That and, uh, you know, Tina breaking up with me. Those two things just destroyed my life. Uh, I don't know. 16 years old, man. That was horrible. I got over both of them. Driving <laughs> driving license was, was uh, I don't know, rite of passage maybe for all of us. It took us a while. Today, you have 20, 21-year-old, 22-year-olds not even driving. And then they build in this fear, right? Now they're afraid to drive. You don't understand. I have anxiety. I need a cry room. They can't even drive. So what is that going to do to the prices of, of gas and the car registrations. Now you think, oh, isn't it wonderful because the pollution in the environment? I don't know about that because in the 70s, the pollution, we had much, much, much fewer cars. It'd be interesting to find out. How many did we have in 1978 when I was playing on the playground in my elementary school and they called a red flag warning and the smog was so bad and all of us had to run back inside or stay inside for the day. We couldn't play outside because of the red flag, the smog. Does that even ever happen anymore? You notice how they don't talk about that with global warming, do you? And yet this agenda of the left continuing to push this idea that you as a retiree with money, you're supposed to pay the price. Boy, shame on you. You must feel guilty because. And so I think they're going to use energy. I think they're going to use some of the inflation scare. I think they're going to use some of that. Your job is to protect and plan for your family, for sure. Don't don't forget that. And it's also to start getting involved on some of the local levels. You've heard me say that. 
I think you have to. I think you have to get out and you have the time. Maybe you have a little bit of extra time and money for sure. I don't want you to forget to get out and get involved. When we come back after the break, I'm going to talk about, uh, look, I think consumers need to brace for sky high inflation. And how do we plan for that? How are we, if we're, quote, expecting the worst? Because we think in June it's going to hit the June numbers, right? 11-year high? Mm, How do we prepare for that? What do we think is going to happen? Well, going forward. We'll cover that when we come back. Back. Tuition, medical care, rent, gasoline, it's all going up. I've got some solutions for you on the Total Financial Hour. I'm Eric Hallaby. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Now, higher income strategy. Learn from Arab Halaby. Hey, welcome back. Thanks for staying with me. I'm Arab Halaby. Triple eight ninety nine retire. That's eight 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 nine nine seven three eight four seven. Talking about your family's finances, of course, getting out of debt, managing money, planning for the future. And that is a future of, well, certainly immediate future. And I'd say the next two, maybe two to three years, you're looking at uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to eight percent inflation on a regular basis. That's the number every year, every year, every year. That's important. You know that because the real inflation for you and I is probably closer to 12 or 15. It's usually eh, almost double that what they normally say. And even when it was two percent, we knew that it was four Right, It's just kind of the numbers they use and how they carve out these things and carve out that. So how are we going to manage it? I want to give you a little bit of a solution when it comes to these different layers of uh, saving money, increasing your income, etc. Look, part of it is speaking to you frankly, and I think that's one of the benefits of our shows for all of these years is is speaking to you pretty clearly. and, And sometimes I know I get it. I might just hurt your feelings. So I'm going to do my best to not do that. It's not my intention, but I'm not going to shy away from it either. So here's what it is. First of all, if you're retired and you're not doing something every day, then I think you should look at a part-time job. But wait a second, Eric, if I have more than enough money to live, then great. I'm happy for you. I still want you to have a purpose. So consider volunteering. Because unless you can't leave your house, if you are in that third stage, right? Tom Hegna talks about the go-go years. That's the first 10 years of retirement. The slow-go years, that's the second 10 years of retirement. And then the no-go years, that last 10 years or so of retirement. You know, you can add a couple here and there. But the, the point is, if you're in those first two phases and you're able to do something, I want you to stay and have purpose. There's something that happens to the way you walk, getting up in the morning, putting on your lipstick, putting on your, your taking a shower, brushing your hair. Those things in life matter greatly when you take that next step of having a purpose. Because if you do, then the expenses with uh, when it comes to gasoline or, or uh, you know medical care, rent, tuition, whatever it is that you might extra ha- have extra in your life, maybe you're paying for a, a grandchild to go to college, maybe you're helping your, your daughter with her kids going to private school for elementary or, or high school, you can help and you have real money and it's not going to impact the rest of your life financially. 
So I want you to consider that. The second thing I want you to consider when it comes to if you're going to work part-time, look at some of these legacy places that actually have, ready for this, medical care for part-time workers. You know, Amazon isn't just about loading warehouses. There are other jobs. So does Starbucks and, and some of the retailers. Some of them offer uh, medical insurance that could supplement your Medicare. Here's what I mean by that. Your Medicare insurance, right, You, if you have Part A and Part B, then you don't have to buy anything else. The medical coverage that you get from some of your employers can be the supplemental, meaning it reduces your out-of-pocket expenses. So you don't have some of the copays or deductibles or the donut holes or some of the, the issues that might come with certain types of medical care, and certainly they're going to take less premium out of your Social Security check. Right? So keep that in mind. There may be a way for you to have less costs. If you're going to work part-time anyway, work at a place that eh, may just have medical insurance as part of the benefits. All right, that's something. How about the cost for rent? Well, I can't help you if you have a crummy landlord. Some of them out there, they're just rude. They're not nice. They're downright mean, frankly, and, and disrespectful. But I can also tell you I have friends that are, are landlords. They own various homes, a bunch of houses and rentals and et cetera, apartments. And they'll tell you that 100% of the, of the tenants, of their tenants, have lied to them. People that look like their kids, their grandchildren, people that look like their, their grandparents. Everybody, this is, I'm telling you, the, the landlord, 100% of them have been lied to by the tenants. So you got to realize if you're a landlord or if you're a tenant dealing with a landlord, you know, give them a little bit of a benefit of doubt. Don't let, don't tar them with the same brush that the last guy got. Give them a little bit of chance to prove to you that they're not a liar or dishonest or a crook or the landlord is, is unattentive. You know, give them a little bit of a chance. So back off just a little bit. And then when it comes to rent, pay on time. Because if the inflation world, if the recession is coming, they may end up having some vacancies. And they may, out of the goodness of their heart or just the goodness of their pocketbook, not raise your rent because you're somebody that pays on time. I get it. It's not late until the fifth of the month and you're going to show them who's boss. That's fine. But guess who's going to be the first son of a gun to get a rent increase? Yeah. Oh, you know what? You're going to you're gonna call and nickel and dime them on every little thing. Oh, the, the doorknob. Well, all you have to do is go to the that junk drawer, grab that screwdriver and tighten something up, right? But you're, I'm not saying, you know, repair things that you're not qualified to repair. But if you can fix little things without bothering them, you become more valuable to the landlord. Their ability to raise rent on you? Probably not. They probably won't. Now, again, I can't speak for them, but why not put as many things in your favor as possible? All right? So don't nickel and dime your landlord and don't pay late. Pay on time, even a day early. They will respect that. Now, they might still be a jerk at the end of the story, but guess what? You have your integrity. You have who you are. All right, what about tuition? Paying for your kid's uh, college tuition or your grandchildren's college tuition. Uh, okay, here's what I'm going to recommend you do. Even if they've already taken one year at the expense of private school, I'm going to tell you this. Have them come back and go to community college. Now, I get it. You saved your whole life. You promised her, him. But if they are accepted to a UCLA-type school, I think they're forever accepted. I might be wrong if they change the rules. Maybe I'm, I'm not clear on it. But once you're accepted, you're always accepted, right? So go back and complete the community college. Pay less 
than you would have. That's a great way to offset some of the costs. Sometimes kids do that, right? They'll take one semester or one year, then they'll come home. Maybe they weren't mature enough to be in the dorms at that time. Maybe they had some social or or uh, uh, personal issues and had to kind of readjust. Nothing wrong with that. That's normal, right? Come back, reset, go back out again. Perfect. That's what a family's for. All right, so by understanding that, maybe it makes sense to pull back your kids and say, guys, listen, I know times were great and we wanted to pay for all these things and we loved it, but I'm going to tell you, it's tough right now. So why don't you come back, come back home, let's, uh, let's start over or go back to school or work part-time. Because I think there is a component that you can, you can mix in there, which is, oh, guess what? Pay less for books, pay less for tuition, rent books instead of buying them. Because the community college level, I'm going to tell you, is probably one of the best, especially in this state. It's probably the best in the country or one of the best. And that's an important matrix because usually it's taught by professors and not grad students, especially those first two years, right? So what if you could have those kids closer to home? Now you don't pay room and board. Maybe that's a way to cut back a little bit just to be careful. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe the recession, big scare is going to be a dud. Well, great. I'm happy about that. Let's, Let's have it be a dud. Let's wish that it's not going to be something serious. But it just might be. So we want to pre- plan and prepare for that. How about the, the idea of the cost for driving? Well, look, I like to solve the problems, most of the problems, by you going to work and doing something and making more money, being creative, being an entrepreneur. I don't like to solve the problems by you cutting coupons and driving less and you know combining all of the trips to the store on the same Tuesday so that you're only driving away from the house once a week or something, uh, I, that is certainly a solution, but it's le- it's my least favorite of everything. My most favorite is I want you to leave the house four days a week instead of seven. I get it. Fine. But, those, but three of those four are going to be also to go to work because there's something that happens to your personality, even if it's four hours a day the interaction with other human beings, right? The ability to go out and meet people and, and realize that they are left, right, up, down, black, white, different ethnic backgrounds, and yet they're people too. It kind of keeps you from being kind of barricaded and locked in your house, having one channel on TV the whole time. I still want you to to have your values. I don't want that to change, but realize we're still in the United States of America. And you have to get along well with others. You're going to fight. But you're going to do so with respect. And I also want you to figure this out. This is an important thing. There's an election coming up. And get involved. Maybe you're not the person that's going to run for office and be the face of the, of the latest, greatest uh, you know, position in the community. But you can report to the headquarters once a week. Make phone calls, lick envelopes, carry signs, protest, march, walk, whatever. Because people will care if they see that others will care. And if you think everybody's going to care behind their phone and hit 16 likes and two retweets and four shares, and that's my involvement of the community involvement of the week, 
I don't think you're going to find that your values were going to get very far because nobody will care. You have to get out and make people care. You have to defend yourself. You have to be strong. You have to know what you believe. And all of that gives you a healthier, stronger uh, position in life and outlook on life. All right, so how are we going to manage some of these things when it comes to the income side? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your income, take your assets and let's break them into three different sources. Small, medium, and large, ABC, one, two, three, call it whatever you want. All right, I want you to have one that starts sooner rather than later. Its job is to make sure that you can live. Now, if you say, Eric, if I took your advice and I went and got a part-time job, then er, we're not going to start that one. We're going to keep it and we're going to, the short term, the one that's right now, we're going to push off because maybe we're going to fill the income gap that, that the inflation has eaten up. We're going to fill that with your job. And it also satisfies your lifestyle, uh, living, your values and all the other stuff that matters. That's, that's a great thing. I like that. But I do want you to have in mind that at any time when you need to or want to stop working, that short term bucket we flip a switch and it comes on. Maybe you decide that it is oh, a money market account. Maybe it's a CD. Maybe it's a fixed annuity where you just take the interest out each month. You can do that. Okay, that's a very important component to what you're looking for, which is a steady stream of income that can answer that. If you need another set of income, uh, set, sets of income, but but maybe three years, five years from now, right? Because as I mentioned, I don't think inflation's going away anytime soon. I think we're going to have three, four years of this. It's not going to be until the next president comes in and then puts his or her people in power. And then from that, and we're hoping it's a conservative, that it's going to actually change direction of what this guy's been doing. And from that, by putting their people in power, they're going to, it's going to take a bit. We're a big ship. We have to turn. So I think we still have a, a minimum of three years. So what if in three or four years, as inflation has creeped up, you've stopped working or the other account just isn't cutting it? Well, let's start the second one. Let's turn on that income stream and start another set of dollars come out. So how many dollars would I have in each one of these buckets? I'll break that down to you in just a second. And then, of course, the third one is eight, 10 years from now and, and go on. All of these are designed to last for either a, a medium period of time, four, five, eight years, or for the rest of your life, meaning you're going to have two or three sources of income kicking in at once, right? So, so maybe you're going to have these things lasting for a long time, maybe for just a medium time. Depends on your situation. But how much would I say for each bucket? Well, I'd like to see at least $100,000 in each bucket. Now, maybe you say, oh, if I only have 150000 great. Well, we just would do one bucket then. It's not the end of the day, uh, the end of the world, rather. We can, we can make it work. We can fix it. We can, we can build a plan, if you will, an income stream off of one, no problem. What I don't want you to do is to think that you need to have a million dollars or $10 million. But you do need to have something. Okay, so maybe it's $100,000 in each one of these buckets or each one of these types of accounts. So if you have $100,000 in each one of these accounts, well, how much can it give you an income? 
figure somewhere right in the neighborhood of a, between 400 maybe 350 to 450 dollars a month per 100,000 now that's if you want income to last for decades for the rest of your life right maybe you want it to last for years and years and years okay well then maybe we take just that 400 dollars a month but in the end you say, ah, oh, look, that hundred thousand's job is just to give me money for the next five years. That's it, five years. I'm going to say, well, let's take out twelve hundred dollars a month, because in five years, then you turn on your social security at age seventy. Get it? So, we use part of your money to buy us time to get you to the maximum in social security age. Now I'm happy. Now we have, well, you have a plan. And that makes a big difference because if you're doing things on purpose, now you have a strategy that you, your CPA, your financial professional, you guys have all sat together and now you're building a strategy where things are happening on purpose and not this haphazard, let's close our eyes and guess and we'll be at the will and the whim of the market. We're just going to close our eyes and hope the stock market does what it does or hope Wall Street is, is in line with expectations on the, cal, you know, the, the European markets are open today. And I guess you can spend that as an avocation if you want. I think that kind of thing is a waste of your time. I think you should spend your time and energy enjoying life, working part-time, not necessarily for the money, but if you do, well, great, get some health, get some, uh, healthcare benefits. But when it comes to doing something to get along with people and to have the production of your life be valuable, okay, well, now I'm happy. And what is that third account to do? Why do we have that small, medium, large, or ABC? What is that last one? What's the job of that last one? It just might be that healthcare slash you know, long-term care. What if all heck breaks loose? What if I can't? care for myself, and I need somebody to care for me. What do I do? Well, there you go. That now gives us that ability to have many, many sources of income, but just in case I need it, just in case I'm in a position to where I have to have some or part of my money available for long-term care, some or part of my money available in case my family can't care for me and I have to hire somebody, right? A lot of you think that life is about, oh, I'm just going to ask my daughter to move in. Oh, I'm just going to ask my son to move in. Well, maybe. But what if they don't want to move in? Right? What if they're not qualified? We dealt with this recently uh, in our family. What if you're just not qualified? I I mean, you might have all the love in the world, but what if you just went to work? I got an idea. You went to work, made money, and then you paid ready for this? The expert, the expert, the person who was trained to care for your loved one because they might have a special medical condition, right? Maybe you were there just as a backup, just as the secondary person, the next person over, the the person to care for and help. Okay, got it. I like all that. I just don't want you to be somebody who doesn't have choices, right? So the long-term care part of it And I'm going to put that in quotes because it's not necessarily long-term care insurance. It's what you might call, from a a connotation standpoint, the care that's needed to, to 
have dignity and last the rest of our life, I guess that's the way to put it. So that we're not in a position to sit at home and, and be at the beck and call of non-experts and people's favors, right? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to pick and choose the person you want to care for you? So those kinds of things matter. That's an important part of that third phase. Now, what happens if you're earning, you're pulling income from all three of these buckets and there's still money left over and you pass away? Or you're pulling money from one bucket and the other two are still there and you pass away and there's still money left behind. What happens to all of those funds? Well, the way annuities work, fixed and fixed indexed annuities, it's very simple. The way we work anyway with them. And, and any of your financial experts can choose to do this as well, and I, I recommend it. Simple. You pass away, whatever's left goes to your family. That's it. Now, you might choose, well, my grandkids, I want them to have something, but not if they're too young. You know, I need them to have just a little bit more time under their belt. So they're going to have to be 25 years old before they get anything. Or I want my kids to do it, but listen, my daughter's been lousy with money her whole life, so I'm going to want to make sure she doesn't get access to all of it. She's going to get pieces and parts, right? I'll give her some money uh, inside of this particular account to pay to buy a car, uh, but up to a certain amount. And then I'm going to give her some money to pay for her electric bill, but only a certain amount, right? So you can do that. How do you do those things? Either delay and then give or give a smaller portion, but for the rest of that person's life. How do you do that? You do it through a trust, a revocable living trust. Some of you guys call them just a living trust. Same thing. The concept of a living trust and what it de- what it's designed to do is simple. It's designed to act like you when you are not here, which means your wishes, your desires, your goals. Uh, gosh, you can say, my kids... In order to get a check, a $20,000 check every week, they have to go stand on the corner of, uh, you know, first and main with a blue hat on their head and a sandwich sign saying, I love Trump. That's what you should, guys should do to those liberal kids that return from college. They want their money. They have to drive around a car that is, you know, says, I love Trump with the Trump flag sticking out the back. Or they don't get their money. Let's see how principled they are then. <laughs> it's going to be donated to uh, you know the Ronald Reagan Museum if they don't uh, decide to honk their horn and, and wear the sandwich sign on First and Main. Yeah, see, you could do that. It's one way, one way to convince the kids to play along. So you can do anything you want inside of your living trust. Now, what do most people do? Very simply. What do they do? Well, they just say, hey, if I die and I have two kids, divide it by two and, and you know split it up and give it to them. Or they say, uh, you know, pay for this, pay for that. I already gave Jimmy some money for the down payment on his house. So Susie gets, uh, you know, the same amount. And then what's left is divided by two, right? Sometimes they do that. You just have to write it all down. That's the trade-off. So if you have your two or three buckets, if you will, extra accounts, and you want them to all go to the trust after both you, both of you pass away, then you just make a decision. You put it into the accounts, you make it very clear, and you say something like this. Okay, kids, when I pass away, the money's going to go into the trust, whatever's left. But I want all of you to be very clear on something. My goal is to leave you nothing. 
Yes, you guys need to say that. It's to leave you nothing. In other words, I want to spend the very last dollar that I have left. And if I can do that, I'm a very happy camper. If I can't do that, then you'll get something left. But just know, I'm not, don't expect anything. Now, if you can do that, then you give your kids the best shot at life. Right? Meaning they, they're independent. They're going to think for themselves. They're not going to look over their shoulder to see if you're still breathing. So they can run back and collect some coins off you. You know, <laughs> take your watch off. Take the Renoir off the wall or the Monet. Right? These are kids that their goal is to, to go out and make it on their own, create some life. So I just want you to keep this in mind. Now, look, ethnically speaking, a lot of us, my dad is from the Middle East. The goal in his whole life was to care for us kids and to create something out of, out of life. It was to give us a better chance. So what I'm saying is a little bit difficult for a lot of us that say, listen, it's for my children. I live for my kids. I get it. It's my wife and I think very similarly, but we did make it very clear to our kids. Listen, our goal is to leave you guys nothing. It's to give you a chance, an opportunity. That's what we gave you in the best country on earth. And that's it. That's the best we can give you because from there you can make anything you want. Thanks for being part of the show. 888-99-RETIRE, 888-997-3847. I'm Eric Hallaby. Stay tuned for the second hour of the show. Matt Rexrode, when we come right back on your place for news, talk, and information. We'll be right back. Now Arif has a plan for me. Higher income strategy. I'll retire comfortably. Thanks to Arif Halaby. Now every dollar's got a job to do. Financial security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, total financial hour. Now higher income strategy. Learn from Arab Hallaby. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with me. I'm Arab Hallaby, the Total Financial Hour, your place for news, talk, and information. As I promised, our special guest, Matt Rex Road. Listen, uh, Matt is an expert in a lot of areas, and I mentioned earlier the ESG conversation. That's the environment, social governance. You know, on the second hour of the show, I like to read your emails. I like to get into to get some uh, great guests on to discuss some of the political stuff, maybe how it's impacting you financially, but more importantly, this trend. If you pay attention, this trend is starting to impact your retirement accounts, my retirement accounts, and the, the, really the position of the United States economy, and of course. We always do uh, what we call icing on the top, which is Elon Musk, because he's always a part of all the great conversations. Joining us is Matt Rexrode. Matt, uh, thanks for being part of the show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Always always happy to talk uh, finance anytime I can. Yeah, Matt Rexrode, folks, president of Strategy Insights. You can email him at matt at rexrode.com. I'll get you that again, so grab your pen, matt at rexrode.com. Uh, Strategy Insights, Mike, uh, Matt, tell me a little bit about it. What does that mean? You know, I, I run political campaigns and public affairs campaigns all over the United States, but um, what I really like to do when I'm not doing that is uh, learn about and study and, and engage in great conversation about finance. So I, I write a column for the Sacramento Bee, and it tends to be mostly about economics and public policy and, and finance. Yeah, I noticed that, and that's what has caught my eye. Uh, folks, Matt and I have known each other for a couple of years, maybe three, four years now, uh, and I caught 
one of your articles recently in the Sacramento Bee, folks, he writes regularly for it, so just kind of keep your eyes open. You can even do a search on the Sacramento Bee uh, website and get some of his past articles. Matt, this conversation was about ESG, which stands for Environment Social Governance. Now, Elon Musk kind of jumped in a little bit because Tesla was removed from this index, from this conversation uh, that this ESG uh, idea, this concept has really kind of come to fruition in a lot of the insurance companies and the investment companies. What is it and why is it important? Well, I'm not a huge fan of Elon Musk, actually. Sometimes I find him fairly annoying, but I actually think he has a great point when he was somewhat critical of the whole ESG system. You know, there's no set really set standards on what grade you get in terms of being environmental or social or having good governance. And so he got um, his companies got um, uh, marked down for basically not living up to the governance standards. But it would be really hard to argue that in terms of for environmental accomplishments and what he's done for the electric car in terms of reducing pollutants and other things, how his score for the E portion of ESG isn't off the charts. And um in terms of social, I guess that's debatable and, and how it fits in certain ways. Same things with governance, but it is impacting portfolios. You talk about you know pension funds or 401k funds. You know, We have a history of divesting from certain things that we find socially undesirable. When I was growing up, there was a huge effort to divest from South Africa. People want to get away from certain things that they find you know morally repugnant. So they don't want their finances invested in there. And the state pension plans do a lot of that too. But now... Um, this standard really is um, set by some different factors. If right now, if you're a, a Russian company who's doing a great job in, on everything environmental, social, or governance internally with you, you still may not be able to participate in one of these funds or anything else because of what your government's doing. And I, I, I don't know that that's within their control, um, but the, you know that's the way it's being set up. And, and Musk said, hey, look, you know, I understand you may not like my governance uh, score, but I should be testing off this charts on the environmental portion, so I should get credit for that. And yeah. I think that's a fair criticism. You know, Matt, it was once uh, universally understood that institutional investors, their main objective, my mutual fund, pension fund invest- investment companies, their job was, and obligation, for that matter, was to maximize my returns for shareholders, for investors, without regard to other factors like social or environmental impacts. That's changed a lot over the years, but there seems to be this acceleration because this rise of the, quote, responsible investment, the problem is there's really nobody to to measure it. There, there isn't a, a universal set of standards like these 15 checkpoints, and then you, you fall into this category or that category. And because yeah, there, it, it moves with the, the political environment. Yeah, well, there's, you know, when I was in law school 25 years ago, when we you know, studied corporations, it was beat into our heads that the idea that, that the corporation is to maximize the value for the shareholders. And, you know, now it's just the view of, of corporate America is a little bit more expansive. You know, the uh, the United States Business Roundtable, they, they actually kind of changed the definition or obligation of the corporation, saying that it's more about stakeholders out there in the world. And stakeholders can be anyone. If it's, if it's you know, your business, it could be people who live in the community around you, could be your employees, could be all kinds of things. But they argued for a more expansive view of the purpose of the corporation, whereas it always, once again, used to be to maximize return for the shareholders. 
that's not the view anymore. And I think ESG funding or ESG funds is another way to look at that. Um, there's no no real objective standard on how it's measured, but it certainly is shaping finance without a doubt. I mean, they're estimating by the end of the decade that there'll be thirty trillion dollars in these in these funds throughout the world. That's amazing. I remember when I first started as a financial professional, it was probably 1996, seven or eight, the Calvert funds. I still remember that because it was very unique. Calvert funds had maybe two or three socially conscious uh, funds, and they generally focused on nuclear, tobacco and firearms. And that was their thing. General Electric, although an outperforming stock at the time, was not allowed to be a part of it because they also built, you know, of course, jet engines and and. Um, MRI machines, but oh wait, they were a big part of nuclear power plants, so they pulled them. That affected a lot of people's portfolio and ultimately uh, led to General Electric divesting from certain types of investments. What do you think is going to happen with companies that say, we have a division over here that might be a problem to quote this ranking system, whatever it might be at the moment, and then we in turn now turn around and we look at that and say, well, we're going to have to divest that division and do you see that occurring across the board with certain companies? Well, I don't know that that'll necessarily happen for sure. The companies don't seem to be changing too much. So there's this attempt to to place these standards on these companies, and some of the companies are obliging and saying, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll change some of our behaviors. Some don't seem to care. Um, put us in the system, put us out. Um, but they've just basically said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and deal with that. But, you know, your, your nuclear example is a great one. Uh, you know, there will be people who will be to take the subjective analysis of nuclear power and say, hey, that's um, that is a um, that's a terrible thing. I look at nuclear as one of the more clean ways to produce energy. And, and a lot of people don't know this, but they talk about the Paris Climate Accords. A big chunk of Paris's power comes from nuclear energy. That's right. And people say we should be more like France. But I just one of my other columns in the Sacramento Bee was about the idea of nuclear power. And I, I believe that nuclear power is the future if we want clean power. And so yet some people would say no. And under my standard of what I think is environmentally conscious and aware, I would put a nuclear investment to be a good one. Uh, somebody else would look at those same facts and make the opposite conclusion. That's fine. But that's subjective analysis with no clear standards, and that's actually what ESG has become. You know, my overall argument and concern is is that the legislature or Congress is going to step in and try to mandate some standard. Um, but I think, as we've kind of discussed in different examples, it's not it's not really pretty in terms of they talk about the legislatures. You know, you don't want to see the sausage made of legislation. I don't think that we want to see a standard set up for ESG yet. We should just let the markets work on that stuff right now. Yeah, I think that's very clear when you take a look at something like nuclear, because from their uh, ESG ratings explained scenario, you know, you have a theme score based on pollution. That's one of their their uh, environmental score pillars, in addition to ecological footprint and climate change. Well, nuclear is a great example that doesn't nearly, uh, well, I guess, nearly perfect in just about all of it. The percentage of electricity generated versus used as opposed to something like solar by the time it runs down the line or or uh, the solar panels are dirty and it takes a, a regular cleaning, sometimes uh, daily if not weekly cleaning in, in the desert because of the sand and it blocks out a lot of the solar panel uh, ability to, to absorb uh, the sun rays. So, so this ongoing push, my concern here as we think about this is the obligation still exists of the corporation, but how has it evolved over the years? 
Well, over the years, once again, it goes down. It goes back to the, the, this inclusion of the stakeholders, and it used to be, once again, just the pure, you know, profit of the shareholders of the company. Um, and over the years, it's evolved to include different people who may not technically be at the table making the decision, but even business schools now are teaching the concept of stakeholders. If you're going to run a business that's socially responsible and they teach corporate responsibility, it's certainly more than the shareholders. It involves, uh, you know, it, well, like I said, employees, the community around it, those sorts of things all need to be factored in. And I think those are happening as a result of the change in corporate culture in America. And I think that's happening um, regardless of any sort of legislation. It's just happening. Well, you mentioned how Sacramento and Washington getting involved in this mess, uh, they're inclined to screw things up just because they, they do when they get involved. Even if you're an organization that says, I'm going to spin off this division that, that makes firearms or bullets or, or nuclear energy, and then there are investors out there like myself and others that say, well, that's great. It's the Second Amendment. I think firearms defend way more lives than it takes on, a, on an angry basis, on a daily basis. How do we uh, judge this? I'm just going to invest in what's called pro-American companies. Let's say that's me. Well, today the banking system now says, I'm sorry, we're not going to do business. The federal and state banking systems, we're not going to do business with firearm companies. We're not going to, you can have your own investment mutual fund over there, but the New York Stock Exchange might say, we're not going to let it trade on our exchange. Or NASDAQ might say, we're not going to let it trade on our exchange. So it looks like there's a social, uh, almost a pariah that occurs even if it's a good investment, even if it does well to the uh, the stakeholders or the shareholders, is there any solutions that you can think of to push, to give me and you and other investors that might think certain types of investments are, are positive? Well, yeah, actually, well, I think we're seeing that. I, my, my prediction is that we're going to see that right now. It's really easy for people to invest in some of these I would say that if you're looking for return on your investment, um, you're looking for a diversified portfolio, obviously. But um, more importantly, when the market, everything's going well in the market and, and things are rising, it's pretty easy to say, oh, you know, instead of getting 12% next year, I'll choose this one over here. I'll only get 10 but I'm good with that. Um, when people start losing money, you'll start seeing people be more risk averse. I'm like, oh, you know, I really wanted to do this socially responsible thing, but now I really want to get that return. I'd rather lose four percent than six percent this year and so as they're diversifying their portfolio they'll make choices and this now comes at a cost to people and you know there's this professor that i was was preparing for my article this professor at the university of colorado and he was basically saying that you know people are losing um return and they're not getting a lot in terms of changing the world with these socially responsible esg funds He, he very very full-throatedly saying, you know, hey, that this is not a good return. And I'm sure that if I walked into your into your business and said, hey, you know, look at my portfolio, um, you would tell me to be very diversified to cover a lot of markets. And there probably still is plenty of ability to diversify within ESG funds, at least I hope. But if we start taking away whole countries because we don't like the way Russia or China or, you know, some of these emerging markets might be included in a portfolio because we don't like what those companies are doing, Suddenly, your ability to diversify geographically, or maybe even by sector, whether it be energy or, or Southeast Asia or any sort of other emerging market, suddenly you're more limited, and you're you're not going to get as good a return for your client as you would if you were diversified across all of those things. Yeah, it seems like they're they're going to hold the financial professional to a standard. Maybe they call it a fiduciary standard. Maybe they call it a a, a responsible standard towards the, the consumer's interest. 
and yet at the same time kind of have them fight with one hand behind their back. It doesn't always seem to work to that benefit. Well, I guess I would ask you as a professional on this, how many folks are walking into your door and asking about this? Is this just hypothetical theory that I'm talking about, or are people actually asking you about stuff like this? Yeah, uh, 100% never. In twenty, never, yeah, in twenty-seven years, believe. Now I do get, and and maybe it's the client base, maybe it's my my structure as a business. But in twenty-seven years, I have had a line of people that are worried about uh, providing funds to pro-abortion, or I guess they call it pro-choice, pro-choice items, or or, or uh, you know sweatshop. So I get a little bit of that. Uh, but mostly it's I want to be towards pro-life companies. I, I, nobody cares about tobacco because that's a choice. Nobody cares about firearms because that's a choice, in my opinion. But when it comes to the pro-life, I think that's the only one. I'm just trying to think about it here. So that, that's really the only place people have come in and ask questions. Well, so, you know, that actually brings up another really key point. So a lot of these funds that invest in these ESG funds, about 80% of this investment are basically European large funds. So sovereign wealth funds from other countries that are providing a good chunk of this. A lot of people think this is, you know, maybe left coast America sort of things. But the vast majority of this, you know, $30 trillion it's estimated to to um, be in ESG funds is coming from Europe. But the, at the same time, the, the the portfolio of these um, or the, the listing of these and the, and the total market value of these companies or these funds in the United States is growing incredibly rapidly as people are choosing to make this choice. But, you know, we've had a growing market for a decade um, pretty much until about, you know, two years ago at the start of the pandemic. But, you know, people were living pretty large there for a while. And once again, it was pretty easy to choose a luxury item, which was, you know, a socially conscious thing. I'm not so sure people will feel that way with the market down by whatever percent, you know, everyone who's listening's portfolios down right now, they may not be willing to make that choice. Yeah. Let's be clear, guys. Let me explain to you a sovereign wealth fund. Most countries in the world, or certainly the developing ones with a few extra dollars, have a mutual fund, if you will, where they take a portion of their own revenue as a country and they invest it. They might buy Nestle or, or Nike or this uh, apartment building or this, uh, you know, hotel chain. So in other words, they take their money and they buy public and private institutions and investments and they're using their own country's money. The United States does not have a sovereign wealth fund, uh, but it's a little bit of a little bit of a trick, meaning many of the states do and they'll use pension funds instead of really sovereign wealth funds, which kind of indirectly help out the taxpayers. So the taxpayers are not funding a pension. The internal investments are. Uh, so that helps quite a bit. Uh, but Texas, for example, has two sovereign wealth funds. So some places have one, some have uh, very few have two. But you get an idea that the countries are taking their own taxpayer revenue, their dollars, their generated wealth, and they're buying into, I guess, some of these corporations. I saw this years ago uh, with a friend of mine from Kuwait, and he was working in the sovereign wealth fund. He was an attorney uh, that said, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to focus on this part for our nation. And was making quite a bit of money. I mean, the dollars that they were making and the things that they were buying under different names, right, different corporations, hotel chains, apartment buildings, uh, golf courses. I mean, we saw this with Japan in the 80s and, and China in the 2000s. Do you think the sovereign wealth fund is going to be the, the thing that really pushes this over the edge? Oh, well, they're, they're, they're 
those are the sorts of investors that are really making this choice, and and that's fine. But you know, they can choose to do obviously whatever they want to with the money. The one the one group that you didn't list in in your um, you know source of these large amounts of of, of investments are university trust funds, right? Oh, yes. They have these enormous yes. uh, enormous uh, amounts of money. Some of the Ivy League schools have you know billions of dollars. I know USC probably has billions of dollars that they're um, saving and maintaining with scholarships and whatever else, and they're also choosing to make choices based upon not necessarily the highest return for their investor. They're making it upon other factors because they want to. They feel that they're promoting a certain cause, whatever that may be, and they're, they've got their own um, list of choices to be able to determine that. But once again, it's been a pretty good ten years. It's, it's starting to slow down a little bit right now, but it's been an easy choice to make in the past. Yeah, we've seen uh, the amount of wealth just off the charts from from the Harvard, the Yales, the Texas Tech, the Brown Universities, their trust funds, if you will, or their endowment funds, uh, in fact, they have created a system in play that is really pushing and pulling the United States and the world, especially if you're a small company or even a medium-sized company. You don't want to upset your shareholder, which happens to be Brown University or, or Columbia. So there is a there is an influence that's occurring with that level, of course. Well, and there, there's also, I mean, and some of your listeners may remember back, you know, 20, 30 years ago when Orange County went through their bankruptcy and they were invested in derivatives, right? Yep. So we've actually had state legislation passed where they restricted the ability of putting public monies into certain kinds of investments, like excessive derivative investments. And so a lot of those people said, well, hey, um, you know, that, that makes sense. We just saw what happened with Orange County. We don't want to see that again. And that's one choice to take one tool away from the you know portfolio manager. But and so some people might say, well, hey, that's a good thing too. Um, so you know whether people restrict their ability to buy certain energy stocks or where your example um, issues tried to do with a, you know healthcare having to do with abortion or guns or you know whatever. You know we make choices that that um, we say no, that's not acceptable. We're going to limit our portfolio options as a result of some other position that we have. And my my view of this is, is this is going to continue to happen, especially as you have all of these new investors coming into the world who are, and I'm sure you're seeing it, people sitting in your office who have, you know, they don't have anything saved, but they got a Robinhood account, right? And they've yeah, got, you know, money exactly. in it. And so suddenly they they want all this information and they're, they're looking for that feel-good feeling of getting that, you know, that investment. And so if they can get that good feeling and feel that they're investing in, you know, cleaning up the environment or good governance or some sort of societal thing, they're probably going to keep doing that. And that's why I think this is this trend's going to continue. So I've seen that uh, consistently. And part of what I have uh, paid attention to, I'm not necessarily ranking it on a on a little cheat sheet off to the side, but I am paying attention to trends. And, and the trends that I have found, believe it or not, is that a lot of my very liberal clients, the far left or the at least the certainly reasonably left of center clients are often the ones that are pushing the envelope when it comes to tax write-offs. They're pushing the envelope when it comes to taking uh, deductions that may or may not be, uh, you know, as kosher as as they think it is, or they're even getting to the place where they're leaving the state as fast as possible to try to save taxes that the state of California may be charging them. Uh, I see that because I ask them, but don't you want to support the good things that Gavin Newsom and the state of California are doing? And they, they look at me and they go, 
No way. Are you kidding? I said, well, why do you keep voting for him? Well, because Republicans are racist or, you know, they'll just throw some platitude out. And I and I look at that. So so the, certainly some of the social ideas that the far left has are being outweighed, uh, but very slightly and, and sometimes infrequently by the dollars that are, are lo- lost by them. Well, we, we all we all are going to make those determinations individually. And, you know, ESG funds, as people make individual choices, it's going to start to balance out in the market as those people go and choose to invest in certain things. Other people will take advantage of the <clears throat> of their um, the inverse action of being able to choose other things that maybe do invest in things that are you know basically anti ESG or other things and the market will correct itself and the value of these individual stakes will reflect that and I'm all about it if people want more information they can do it but I do think having a, a, a thoughtful conversation about especially how we invest public money you know is is really important I mean we have um, we have huge holdings by local governments and even the state governments in California, and they'll oftentimes buy municipal bonds. And one of the examples or the great assets of municipal bonds is they're tax-free. Well, governments and pension funds don't pay taxes. So you say, well, why would they invest in those things to save taxes if they don't pay it? And the answer would be that they believe that they're providing a good service by buying the bonds to help build a school or help build a sewer plant or whatever else as part of the public service. They're not trying to maximize their return. They're trying to be members of society, and they make that choice, and they trade off that that because the, the market price of those bonds reflects the saving on savings on taxes that don't have to be paid by somebody who holds those bonds. But they want to do a good thing and put the money in there to fund whatever it is that's being for a road or a school or whatever capital infrastructure is being built with those bonds. Well, just like you as an attorney, you have some pro bono work to do. I think some of those guys uh, do have a heart and do it for that reason. Or it might allow them to do what's called increase their alpha, which means their risk on the other side by kind of balancing out the teeter-totter. I'm going to say, you know, a lot of these guys, because I've spoken to many of them over the years, are going to be doing it for certainly some philanthropic, some altruistic reasons. But eh, I think they also want to seek alpha on the other side, the risk. Okay, guys. Hey, Matt, I'm going to uh, keep you. Can I hold you over for, for after the break? Sure. Happy to. Great. And Matt Rexrode, president of Strategy Insights. Let me give you his email, guys, matt at rexroad.com, matt at rexroad.com. He's a political strategist, president of Strategy Insights. Uh, I like him. He wrote an article recently on the Sacramento Bee. The important part of this, folks, is ESG is impacting you, your retirement accounts. It's the environment, social governance. It's the rating that they give certain businesses and companies. Could that come to you? A small business owner? Could it impact you? We'll find out when we come back. 888-99-RETIRE. That's my phone number, 888-997-3847. 888-99-RETIRE. Stay with me. We'll be right back. Financial security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Now higher income strategy. Financial security will help you live the life you dream. Learn about financial power, the total financial hour. Now higher income strategy. Learn from Arif Hallaby. Hey, thanks for staying with me. Appreciate it. I'm Arif Hallaby. The total financial hour on AM 870, The Answer. 
talking about your family's finances, of course, getting out of debt, managing money. As promised, I brought to you uh, one of the, I think, one of the top thinkers in Sacramento, uh, maybe one of the only guys that doesn't, I don't know, I should have asked you, that doesn't smoke weed on a regular basis that works in Sacramento. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll, none, none of that here. Yeah, I guess we'll keep that to ourselves. Uh, Matt Rexroad, president of Strategy Insights. You can email him at matt at rexroad.com. Strategy Insights is a political consulting firm. And, and Matt, tell me, like, some of who would your clients be? Let's touch on that because I want to ask you a few other questions here. Uh, but yeah, so who would they I be? Help people, I help people run for all kinds of stuff. I helped, uh, I helped elect President Bush back in 2000. I was political director in Sacramento. I'm familiar with your kind of your area of the state of California because I work for Pete Knight and Steve Knight in the past, but I help elect people to the state legislature, Congress. Um, you know, I, uh, I have a client running for attorney general right now, uh, Nathan Hawkman, uh, you name it. So if, if, you, if somebody wants to run for office, I'd try to help them get elected. It's fantastic, but, guys. I, I've known that. I like finance. Yeah, yeah, you do. I was going to say, as an attorney, by the way, and, and a finance uh at least a part of your avocation. I like the way you integrate some of the legal stuff, Sacramento's political world. It's what we like to do here on the Total Financial Hour. So touching on a couple of things, because what matters to to me and to all of us out there is the foundation of why or how our financial life and our, our retirement accounts, if you will, how do we keep them growing even at a time when our political leaders don't seem to be thinking the same way we are? Uh, so you had written an article, uh, I think, pretty clearly stating the point that a lot of business leaders, and it's okay for certain business leaders, to run for political office. Tell me your thoughts on what that's about and, and why do you think that is uh, okay? Well, I think it's not only okay. I think that a lot of people on the political left are actually um, – making this happen and it's 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 actually angering them in, in in the long run but it's totally predictable on what they're asking to have happen similar to our previous conversation before the break more and more um community activists are turning to business leaders in their community and expecting them to respond to whatever goes on in the community they're not turning to their elected officials they're not turning to um, their elected officials to be able to help them and represent the community, oftentimes it's business leaders that step up to respond to emergencies, to provide leadership during crises and all these other things. And um, as a result, um, these elected leaders who are, excuse me, non-elected leaders in the business community end up getting high-profile positions uh, and to such an extent that they are going to continue to seek and get sometimes they're going to win and sometimes they're going to lose but more and more we're going to see business leaders step into elected office because they're getting more and more comfortable of being called on to provide help or leadership during crises and that's just going to happen and as um, people on the left continue to say hey why are you corporate executive not speaking out about the supreme court or about me too or all of these different things then they do step out and speak out on these things. They're expected to tweet about whatever it is that motivates them one way or the other, put out a statement immediately. And I think that 30 years ago, you wouldn't have seen corporate executives speak out on some of these social issues. But now it's expected. And if it's going to be expected of them, they're going to get more comfortable in that environment. 
some of them are going to seek office. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I think a lot of those people on the left who say we don't want corporate leaders running for government, they've created their own problem by expecting them to comment on these political issues. I was at a recent uh, meeting with one of the top uh, companies, insurance companies in the country, uh, and there was a group of us, uh, you know, top performers, whatever you might want to call it, special people where they ask our opinions as if they're going to make a change. But and they ask a few of us, uh, some of our opinions of what was going on, and there was a big social issue at the time. And the the group to a person, left, right, conservative, black, white, it didn't matter. Everybody in the room chimed in in favor of the insurance company not even taking a stand. Like, we don't care what your opinion is on social issue X. Just pay your claims and invest people's money and, you know, pay out the commissions and... and have public or community service uh, fine. It was this real kind of this groundswell. In fact, the millennial types that were, I guess, the directors of the company were seemed very shocked. Afterwards, they came to me. Uh, I just happened to be the one that brought this issue up, and and asked my opinion. Like, why why is this such a big deal? I said because you understand that fifty percent of America doesn't think like this. So when you come out and say this. And and you can say little things. People do. Merry Christmas. Wonderful. Uh, but if if you came out and did this whole push on pro-Christianity, well, what about the Muslim and Jewish and agnostic and atheist population? Right now, I'm going to say it because that's what I believe. But there are a lot of people that don't believe in social issue X, you know, whether it's gay pride or abortion or or, uh, or you know, we, we may not think that companies should even take a stand on that. But that's the consumer, Matt. That's what we're well, seeing. But it, it is the consumer. You're right. But do you see how these ESG issues and these corporate involvement issues and in, in things that are beyond either paying your claims or manufacturing widgets or, you know, serving their customers with whatever food they want? Um, there are, you know, that you have companies like Ben and Jerry's who are out there. They have a very big social agenda. There are people who... I have friends in my family who refuse to go to Chick-fil-A because they don't like the, you know, the objectives of the ownership of the company or they don't like that there's Bible verses under the in and out uh, on the wrappers. Right. But those are all choices that companies are making to get involved a certain in certain ways. And if our elected leaders continue to fail and these people have to step up, things other than the company doing their best product is something they have to do, similar to the way we talk about investments. More than maximizing their return, they're expected to do more. And it's more than their core competencies. It's beyond that. And actually, sometimes you get some of these elected officials who stumble miserably. I mean, the, the, look at the new CEO of, of or president of Disney uh, when they have that whole yeah. um, issue in Florida, right? He was brand new to the office. He wasn't, he wasn't put in that position to speak on behalf of these social issues. And actually, what's funny to me is we stick microphones in these young athletes' faces who are a right. you know, 21-year-old basketball player and say, hey, I want you to comment on this complicated social issue that most members of Congress wouldn't do a good job on. And then they get mocked when they don't speak very well. And it's like, well, look, this is a basketball player. They're not trained to, to be talking about public policy issues. They, that's not their deal. They're, I mean, how would you and I have done when we were 21 years old talking about the conversation we're having right now? Probably yeah, exactly. Probably wouldn't have gone very well. You know, all but of us— expect these athletes to do that. Yeah, all of us have tolerated and, and uh, quietly promoted or dealt with and secured the idea of Bible verses on In-N-Out and Chick-fil-A, private money, the owner's personal money, doing what he wants to with it. 
we never had a problem with that. Chick-fil-A has been around for decades. It's been in California for decade, uh, for at least 15 years that I know of. Uh, and across the board, there's been this a quiet simmer of companies doing their own thing. Everybody knew that Disney uh, was was pro-partner gay uh, ability to have health insurance. And, and we still attended. We didn't, if you cared or didn't care, I mean, we just went to Disneyland because it was Disneyland. But when they come out of the, the in-your-face thing or whether these insurance companies will start posting all over social media or investment companies all over social media, the co- consumer starts to look back and say, well, so wait a second, is my money going towards this cause? Because whatever, you might say 47% of America, but certainly it's a big number, uh, might say, well, you know, look, I'm, I'm all right, you do with your with your own money, but you're using now my money to take even a more accelerated stance. I'm just thinking that they got ahead of themselves here on this whole ESG platform. Now, maybe there isn't enough money behind the other side to say, I prefer to be agnostic about it. Maybe you have to take an aggressive polarized stand or you don't take one at all. Well, I, ESG, though, is is mostly – I mean, we, we talked about it in terms of some of the other things that things like pension funds do. But ESG is mostly a bunch of – you know, it's private people making these individual choices. I mean, there's not as much, you know, U.S. dollars that are involved in that. But um, there certainly are companies that um, they choose to divest from, uh, the pension funds and, and all of these different wealth funds choose to divest from. And that could be guns or tobacco or whatever they feel is not an appropriate thing. But um, in terms of ESG, I argue it's not going. It's. I mean, we can say we don't we don't agree with it or we have problems with their their formulas, but it's not going away. People want that information, and I I think about my children. I have a daughter who's headed off to college this year. Um, you know, in in her fund, she wants to know what you know what companies they're investing in. I was that was never taught to her. I don't think it was part of her economics class, but she expects that information, and I think her friends do too. It's not going to go away. But a big factor of it is is um, get that information, understand what it means, but then understand that you're paying a cost because you're not trying to maximize your return. You're after some other objective other than maximizing your return. Well, I'll give you a good example. Uh, I don't listen to Dixie Chicks music anymore, and I don't wear Nike <laughs> tennis shoes. Uh, okay. And the, the bottom line for me, I mean, I literally threw out. I tried to give them away, no joke, but, you know, who wants 20, 18 pairs, whatever it was, in Nikes. I don't know how many, however many I had, 10 pairs of Nike tennis shoes that, you know, were half used. Nobody wanted them. And I, and I told my wife, my wife says, listen, I love my Nike tennis shoes. I'm not giving them up. I won't buy any more, but I'm not giving up my, my existing ones. I just flipped flipped the script and went over to, to New Balance. So in other words, there's individual consumers that'll say Nike stance with Callan Kaepernick or, uh, you know, the way this organization, uh, I spent two years not watching uh, baseball because of what they did and how they put stuff on their uniforms. And uh, there just is a bad taste in the mouth for some people. Now, I'm willing to make those costs, right, to pay those costs. Maybe not everybody is, but if they're going to be so out front and wear it as a badge of honor on some things, they better be prepared for the people like me and many, many others that are going to say, we're just not going to buy that product or eat at that restaurant or shop at that at that location. And, and we're all going to vote with our feet on all kinds of different issues like that, right? You're, you have a, you've drawn the line regarding uh, Nike, and that's great, right? I have friends who are very liberal who still love Chick-fil-A sandwiches because they like Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches. Right, right exactly. That, uh, I just I want a good chicken sandwich, and that's, they do that pretty darn well, so I'm going to go with it. 
And so we all have our trade-offs, and you have your lines where you draw. I still wear Nikes, but I understand why people don't. That's their choice. But, you know, I sometimes I really wonder if it, I mean, those are all um, factors that we consider when we make certain purchases or make certain investments. But, you know, I don't know how you would feel if maybe Nike was the only shoe that didn't fall apart when you ran. Right, you exactly. You very differently about that. You're going to yep. make that choice, right? But, but New Balance seems to do it okay for you. So you say, hey, this isn't, I'm not, uh, it's a replacement good. I'm not doing that bad with it. It's a great substitute. But it's a little bit different when you don't have an equal substitute. And then you have to really That's make right. some hard decisions. That's exactly right. And I, I think that is where, where the line is. In other words, if we're going to make the case that there's a socially, then we, we don't just give them a score of you know, 8 out of 10. We need to say why it's an 8 and why it's not a 10. And you might say, I'm only dealing with nine and tens. And I might say that that eight is not something I'm comfortable with because I think that pushes it, you know, pushes the bar too far. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you a good example. When Target allowed, you know, men to go into women's restrooms and, and I had a friend on the, I, you know, I'm a retired Los Angeles policeman. And I had a friend on the police department who shared with me how they were uh, finding guys dressed like women and, and, and doing other things, whether they were really transvestites or not, I don't know, but but uh, trans women, I guess they call them, uh, but going into the bathroom and they were finding abuse cases pretty regularly, men just walking in there and, and having issues. So they were making arrests. They were having issues. He shared with me and I said, you got to be kidding. That's not going to happen. He says, Eric, I'm telling you, they have the, these rules where people can walk into any restroom and, you know, fathers were, were punching these guys in the nose. I mean, it was, it was a big deal on the news. I'm going back maybe four or five years. So we just chose as a family, we just weren't going to go there for a while until they fixed it. And that CEO stepped down or he apologized, made some amends, et cetera, and fixed the case. And, and it kind of went back to normal. So I think there's some temporary things. You see that with JCPenney when they took away the coupons, right? That's just a pure economic thing. Uh, and people stopped shopping there. And that JCPenney CEO retired and or resigned and, and out came somebody else and they started over. So one or two people, right? It's a socially conscious decision. Your daughter making that decision. Uh, because she doesn't like company X, but when there's 10 people and they 10, 10, tell 10 people and it gets out on social media and they call it viral, you know, maybe that's when that impact starts to happen, I, I think. Well, but so exactly right, and I get all of those things, but it's a bunch of individual choices that are to, uh, that are impacting that company. And Chick-fil-A, for example, is not open on Sundays, right? They've said we could make a bunch of money on Sundays, but nope, our yep. value is that we're closed on Sundays. That's up to them. So my whole point with the column that I wrote in the B was, please, legislature, please, Washington, D.C., do not throw yourselves into this and screw it up. Let people make individual choices on all kinds of different things. The market will work. We just have to stay out of the way and not mandate that either um, either you know public funds or private funds be created with these different characteristics. If people want it, the market will provide it for them, and then they can make their choice, and they can make the trade-off based on, in your example, Nike or Target or whatever, and other people will have a different list. Um, you know, your, your producer, Joe, may have a different list entirely, and so, and th- I think that's okay. It doesn't need government mandates to be able to make that happen. You know, I, I like the idea. It's almost like the, you know, the drop of rain or the drop of water, and then it ultimately becomes a flood. Uh, I think we have seen that accelerate with the whole social media impact across the board, whether it's a legitimate case or not, right? We've had mistakes made on social media. It's gone viral and wait, it's the wrong story. It's the wrong theme. It's the wrong, uh, I guess, conclusion. Uh, So I think you're right. The consumers themselves will make the decisions across the board, whether it's these environment, social governance 
programs. I, I can bet if I stop 10 people on the road or even 10 college students, uh, maybe four would understand the word governance and what it means, and I would bet not two can give me a full explanation at any given day. Well, and yet people probably wouldn't have been able to understand the mortgage crisis, but it certainly impacted their yep. their their pocketbook and their employment and everything else for a long period of time. And people um, oftentimes don't understand some of these really important finance issues, but there's no doubt that it impacts their lives. And if pension funds and others go to make these choices, it's going to impact the return on the investment and impact the unfunded liabilities that local governments have to provide pensions for their former employees. Uh, we see across the board the, the pension crisis happening in the state of California. It's a bit of a transition for the last few minutes we have. My my concern is both the state of California, CalPERS and CalSTRS, two of the larger pension systems, I guess, in the country, if you will. We don't see them uh, fixing themselves anytime soon. Have you had any comment or feedback from the folks there in Sacramento on on what the changes might might occur to, to salvage these? Um, no, you know something that the the I mean they're at, the people who work at CalPERS and CalSTRS are, you know, they're investment professionals. You know, they're doing their job and maximizing their returns based on the rules that are given them either by elected officials or their boards. They both have boards. And so, yeah. you know, they have their hands tied to some extent on the things they can invest in. And, you know, they're going about doing that. You know, the, the issue is oftentimes, you know, what are the rules for the pensions that people can receive? What are the different categorized categories for you know, basically defined benefit pensions. And, you know, basically, if you read CalSTRS and CalSTRS, you know, basic principles, they clearly believe in a defined benefit pension. And they're going to, that's one of their core principles. And it's not going to be, you know, market rated, or it's not going to be like a lot of your listeners who have 401ks, it's going to be there with a defined benefit. And um, there are good things and bad things about those, but it's just a different way of funding those pensions. But, you know, the issue comes down to, and I've done a lot of polling on this throughout the state, at some point when those pensions get to be too large, it impacts the ability of local governments to be able to provide services to people, and that's the balance that has to happen. And either they need to be paid in real time on the front end um, better, uh, or they need to reduce those benefits. And so far, the, that, that benefit has been um, considered a property right. And, you know, Governor Brown and some others uh, have, have litigated this point. But so far, uh, there's really been no change in the benefits. So there's got to be a change in the amount of the contribution or by the local governments or by the by the returns on the investment portfolio of the funds. But, you know, they're expected to you know, I think it's 7.75% or 7.25% that they're expected to return every year. That's a tough thing to do. It's a good, and when, you know, the market's cruising, that's that's not so hard to do, but they're going to have a hard time meeting that this year. Yeah, and even, uh, I think, historically speaking, their rate of return has been uh, in the sixes, and they keep trying to, to move it down from eight to seven and a half, seven two, seven, I think, is the latest. Uh, their goal is to to try to meet that. I think we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of about $250 billion upside down. Uh, CalPERS and about the same for CalSTRS. Uh, that means for well, the, what they need based on those funding dollars. Well, and some people may say, well, hey, the difference between 6 and 8%, that's only 2%, right? But if, when you're talking about the, the return on that over a lifetime of investments, you're yeah. a young police officer who starts in, in uh, L.A. to you know retiring at 50 years old, uh, when that police officer retires, the difference between 6 and 8% over that 30-year career, 20-year career is night and day in terms That's of right. what, 
money needs to be there to fund them. And and even even the difference between six point two five and six is enormous when it's compounded over over thirty years. Yeah, and you're talking such large dollar figures where the percentages are important, but they don't pay out percentages to the folks. They pay out dollars, and if the return is not, uh, you know, what's accepted, I think I think it's going to be a struggle. So it'll be interesting well, to see. You- well, you tell me how many of your fellow police officers should have been managing their own money, and that's that's the argument for a CalPERS and a CalSTRS. Exactly right. right. I, yeah. I know, I know, I know a lot of the Marines that I served with. They don't, they don't, they don't have any business trying to manage their um, portfolio of funds. They'd all invest in guns and truck companies. <laughs> well, some of them, yeah, some of them would, would uh, create a coffee uh, store or a coffee uh, company and be. Uh, Pretty darn successful, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Might have been the army. That, might have been the army that did that. Black rifle. Some would, not but, heard of it. <laughs> but, but yeah, but sir, so, so, but some would eat their return that they got too, or they'd re, re, yeah. eat their report. You never know. Yeah, I, I think across. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, across the board, uh, you should always have a professional handling the job that a professional's job is. De- is listen, I don't fix my own plumbing. I don't do my own dental work. Uh, I don't even change my own oil, and I know that that could cost me a man card, but. Uh, by the time I'm done trying to figure that out, you know, I'd make a mess on the street and have to pay hazmat to fix it up. So, so I just go to professionals for the things that I'm not good at, and, and that's a longer list than things that I am good at. But when it comes to, to retirement accounts, you know, planning and, and building your portfolio, folks, let me give you our number. It's 888-99-RETIRE. That's 888-997-3847. Our last minute or two with Matt Rexroad as we talk about uh, some of the changes that I think Sacramento is making towards this push for retirement, for pensions, uh, the, the mutual fund world as a, as a whole, Wall Street. Any any final thoughts that you can say might give us some little little bit of hope in this end? Um, well, well, actually, my I, I guess my I think people are going to now start to really think about it as the market's struggling right now, and so um, hopefully, I mean, I think you're seeing even people flee the cryptocurrency market just because it was real easy when it was all fun money and it was like monopoly money. But now that, you know, cryptos, you know, Bitcoin's down to you know $19,000 or $20,000 and not 60, it's not so fun anymore. And so, um, you know, we find out who the good business people are and who the good portfolio managers are now because they know that the market's not always going to go up. So we'll, we'll get some truth correcting here. Yeah, it's funny that uh, some countries were were shifting some of their assets over to the world of crypto, and both they were accepting it and paying it out, and it was it was becoming this. Uh, listen, I I think if you want to put your money there, if there's a place for it, for your play money, I'm okay with that. But I would almost use the same kind of dollars you're going to go take to Vegas and and put on red or your local Indian casino and and, and put it on roulette. I'm okay with that. But this is your life savings. We want reliable retirement income. We want reasonable rates of return, at least for the food, shelter, clothing money. That's part of the important part. Uh, Matt, Matt Rexroad, folks, strategy insights is a big part of making sure that uh, the right political candidates get elected. Uh, I think generally you focus on the conservative side of things and, and you hold the feet to the fire, if you will, of our politicians in Sacramento that are all from the same political party. So let's say surprise. This is my surprise face. When uh, when we know that it's a mess up there, any any hope that you can see coming out of California, or are we doomed to uh, default? I don't know the answer. Well, we're we're about to have an amazing Republican year at the end of this year in November, and um, it's uh, all looking good for you know basically Republicans throughout the whole country. So I think that for those people who are of a conservative bent, that um, 
they're going to be probably pretty happy this November. I think this this wave that's coming is bigger than anyone I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, and, and you and I have spoken in the past about various individual candidates, and I just want you to know you and I ha- uh, have discussed things, uh, and I have been very coachable, and uh, you've just never been wrong. I have been wrong <laughs> almost 100%. So I'll, I'll default to your expertise. Thanks for your time. Hey, thank you to you and Joe. Have a great evening. Thanks. That's Matt Rexroad, right. folks, president of Strategy Insights. Matt at rexroad.com. You want to reach out to him. You can go to rexroad.com. Check out his website. See some of the things that he uh, writes and talks about. It's an exciting time for you to learn a little bit about, uh, I think, what the political structure is in the state of California. Maybe you can make a difference. I always say get involved. Start off at the little level. School boards, water boards, that's you. This is Eric Halby. Thanks for being part of the show. You go and have a great day. Strategy, learn from Arab Halab.